0: I wonder if you can recall the very first time you witnessed to somebody about Christ. You were probably very nervous, excited, somewhat apprehensive about how to communicate the gospel in a way that sounded clear and sounded intelligent. I really don't remember my first attempt at witnessing for Jesus, but I do recall the first time someone prayed with me to receive Christ. I was a brand new believer in Jesus. I was attending the University of South Florida and then one day a Jewish young man came to my dormitory room to ask me questions about Jesus. He must have heard from someone that I was also Jewish and a believer in Christ and so he just sought me out and to my amazement after telling him everything and I mean everything that I knew about the Bible and Jesus which wasn't much in those days, he proceeded to pray with me to receive Christ I can still recall the incredible thrill that I felt in seeing this young man open his heart to the Lord. And when he left my dorm room, I remember I was so overwhelmed with what God had done that all I could do was just get on my knees and thank the Lord for allowing me the privilege of leading this young man to himself. Now, I wish I could say that every witnessing experience or even most witnessing experiences since then that I've had have... Ended so wonderfully as that first one, but uh, someone praying to receive Christ. I wish I could say that, but that has not been the case. While the Lord has graciously allowed me over the years to introduce a few people to him, the overwhelming majority of people that I have witnessed to have rejected the gospel. And some have been quite hostile in their refusal to come to Christ for salvation. And I don't think you ever get used to receiving a negative reaction to your witness for Christ. And it can be a bit unnerving, especially the first time you experience this unique type of rejection for the cause of Christ. But it's important to understand that being a follower, being a disciple of Christ, means that you cannot escape these hostile encounters with those who refuse to come to the Lord for salvation. It is inevitable. Just inevitable that your witness for him will invite some positive but mostly negative responses. And therefore you have to be prepared for these rejections of the gospel. And that brings us this morning to our study in Luke chapter 9 because it's in the opening verses of this chapter that Jesus reveals to his apostles for the very first time that preaching about him will result in some real negative responses. Here's what the Lord told them. Luke chapter 9 verses 1 through 6. And he called the 12 together and gave them authority and power over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money and don't even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now this is the third Sunday that we have spent studying these verses. So by now you're familiar with the fact that this passage reveals the instructions that Jesus gave to his 12 apostles just before sending them out on a brief preaching tour in the Galilee area. And I remind you that this was their very first experience in serving the Lord, in being involved in ministry. Because up to, to this point, the Lord has done it all. He's done all the preaching. He's done all the healing. He's done all the casting out of demons. But the time has now come for him to include his men, his official representatives, in the ministry and to allow them to get their first taste of service and especially of missionary work. And what we've seen so far in our studies is that although the Lord's commands to his apostles were given in a first century Jewish context, the way to understand these verses, the way to interpret these verses, these commands, so that we can obey them, we can apply them, is to see the timeless basic principles Behind them, and that's because at the core, folks, of these specific commands given to the apostles are broad and timeless and enduring truths and principles about how Christ wants all of his followers to minister for him. See, built into the specific commands that Jesus gave the twelve are enduring. Principles about how to minister effectively. That's what this passage is really about. And though these principles about ministry are particularly applicable to those in full-time Christian service, they are certainly, and I emphasize, certainly broad enough to apply to any believer engaged in serving Christ, and we all should be engaged in serving Christ. And so in our previous studies of the passage, we've identified four specific principles for a biblical ministry, which I'm only going to mention this morning and not review because you've heard it enough. Those who minister, number one, for Christ must have credibility. You must be believable. Secondly, those who minister for Christ must proclaim him as Lord and King. We don't just say he's Savior. We say he's Lord, he's King, he's Master. Three, those who minister for Christ must rely upon him to meet their needs. Four, those who minister for Christ must be content with the needs that God meets, with his provisions. So today, as we continue our final final study of these verses, we're going to see now a fifth principle, timeless principle for a biblical ministry, which is that those who minister for Christ must be prepared for the gospel to be rejected. Luke chapter 9, verse 5. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, I remind you that in the very verse just prior to this, the previous verse, Jesus had just told the apostles that when they arrived in a town or a village in the Galilee area, they were to find a fellow disciple. He said, inquire as to one who is worthy of, And they were then to stay with that person for the duration of the time spent ministering in that community. In other words, don't go looking for better lodgings. Don't go looking for a place that serves you better food. Just stay there. But now that they know the way to determine where to lodge in the various towns and villages, they need direction on how to conduct their actual evangelistic ministry to the people of those towns and villages. And that's exactly what the Lord proceeds to give them. Remember, they are there not simply to cast out demons, not simply to heal people. That gives them credibility as Christ's representatives. They are there to carry on an evangelistic ministry telling people about Christ being king and his kingdom. And so having told them to stay in the home of a believer, or at least someone who's who's open to becoming a believer, the very next thing the Lord does is give them instructions concerning how they are to minister to the various households the people in those communities. Now, interestingly enough, Luke doesn't tell us about this. But we know that this is exactly what the Lord did because Matthew, in his account of this exact same passage, records Jesus as saying, as you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. Now, Jesus said, that when they entered someone's home they were to offer the official familiar Hebrew greeting of peace. It would be shalom or peace be upon this house. That's what they would have said. Meaning that the desire of the apostles was to bring God's peace to this family by sharing the gospel with them. Now it's important to understand that the house that Jesus is talking about here isn't the same house where any of the apostles We're staying. And the reason we know this is because Jesus said, if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. Well, as you'll recall, he's already told them to stay only in the house of someone worthy, meaning someone who is a follower of his, or as I said a moment ago, at least someone who's open to becoming a follower of his. So this must then be a different house he's talking about now because in this new house... They need to first determine if those who reside there are worthy, which in this context means that they are open to hearing the gospel message. And if they are, then and only then are the apostles to give them not only their greeting of peace, but also their blessing of peace. You see, what the Lord is now talking about is how the apostles were to conduct their ministry as they visited the various homes in each of the villages in Galilee, as they sat down with people in each household in order to explain the gospel of the kingdom to them. So he instructed them that as they went from house to house for the purpose of evangelizing the community, the first thing they were to do when they walked through the door of that house was to say shalom upon this house, meaning that their desire was to bring God's peace, God's shalom, and total well-being to that household by telling them about Jesus and his kingdom. Now, peace was to be their expressed desire for this home. But what if the people of this household weren't interested in hearing about Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace and the only one who brings true, lasting peace to the human heart? Well, then Jesus said, according to Matthew chapter 10, verse 13, but if it is not worthy, if the household is not worthy, he said, take back your blessing of peace. Now, this is a rather bold statement by Jesus, and immediately it ought to raise some questions in our minds. Actually, two questions. First, what did Jesus mean by the words, if the household is not worthy. In other words, what constitutes a household unworthy of God's peace? Secondly, what did the Lord mean in telling the apostles to take back your blessing of peace from an unworthy house? And why would you ever take back a blessing of peace once it was given? I mean, wouldn't this come across as rude, discourteous? Shalom to you. Oh, you're not worthy of shalom. I take back my blessing. I mean, who does that? Well, concerning the first question, what did Jesus mean in referring to a house not being worthy? The answer is that the people living in that house did not accept the message of the gospel. They weren't interested in it. They didn't want to hear it. And because they had rejected the only one who could give them peace, Christ, God's peace, would not come to this home. So you can only have peace with God based on faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross because Christ secured peace with God by his death since it was there at the cross, on the cross, that the Father poured out his wrath on his beloved son on behalf of sinners so that those who accept Christ's death for their salvation, they cease fighting God. They're no longer his enemies. The war is over. They're reconciled to him so that instead of being his enemy, we become not only his friends, we become his beloved This is exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But if someone continues just continues to reject Christ then there is no hope For them to be at peace with God. Jesus is the only way you can ever be at peace with God. And once the apostles entered a home and began to speak to family members about Christ, it would be apparent very quickly if these folks were interested in hearing the gospel or not. If they were not interested and they rejected the message of Jesus and rejected the apostles as his ambassadors, then their house would prove to be unworthy of God's peace. That brings us then to the second question. What did Jesus mean by telling the apostles to take back their blessing of peace? Well, this expression, take back your blessing of peace, simply means to withdraw your blessing. You see, the thought here isn't that the apostles were to verbally say out loud, oh, I see that you're not interested in hearing about Christ, so I'm taking back my blessing of peace. You cannot have God's peace. That's not the thought It isn't that this household was given God's blessing and then they lost it, but rather because the offer of peace was never received since they rejected the gospel, it was silently, privately, quietly withdrawn and it returned to the apostles who then left that particular house and moved on to another home where they offered peace to them. Now in telling the apostles that this is what they were to do with the household with the gospel, Was rejected. Jesus is making it, note this, he's making it clear that they were not to stay there and argue endlessly with these rejectors. They were simply to stop witnessing to those individuals and move on to other individuals who might be responsive to the message. Now I think it's important for us to understand. This is an important point, and we shouldn't move quickly through this because there are some Christians who never seem to know when to stop witnessing to an individual. In fact, some Christians don't think they should ever stop witnessing to an individual. They somehow think that given enough time, they can wear an individual's resistance down by just browbeating them with the gospel, by being relentless in their witnessing, never taking no for an answer. And so they continue to just unload the gospel on people who just don't want to hear it. Yet Jesus clearly instructed his apostles to just walk away from those households who were not responsive to the truths about him. And what we ought to learn from this command to the apostles is that there does come a point in evangelizing unresponsive people when we need to stop witnessing to them and just move on to others who might be interested and responsive. So the question then becomes, how do we know when that time arrives? How do we know when enough is enough? We certainly don't want to prematurely stop witnessing to someone. Well, the key to knowing when to walk away from a witnessing situation is to understand the attitude of the person that you're evangelizing. See, Jesus wasn't commanding the apostles to stop sharing the gospel with people who were just slow to comprehend it or were even mildly resistant to the message. If that were the case, then none of us could ever have been saved because we all resisted the gospel when we first heard it. It took about six months for me from the time I first heard about Christ to the time I accepted him to see and understand my need for him, about six months, maybe a little longer. And I thank God that the person who told me about Christ, I thank God that he didn't withdraw from me because I was slow to grasp the gospel and and initially resistant to it. And the same, I think, could be said, folks, of, of all of us. God in his abundant mercy was patient with you. And he sent someone who lovingly and someone who persistently kept sharing the gospel with you until the Lord opened your understanding and you repented of your sin and trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. So we need to understand that Jesus was not telling the apostles, nor is he telling us to quit witnessing to those who aren't instantly responsive to him. So then what kind of people is he telling us to withdraw the gospel from the same kind of people the apostles were told to withdraw the gospel from. Those who are firmly set in their resistance, those who are defiant, those who are stubbornly opposed to Christ, they've made up their minds, they're not interested in hearing anything more. You see, the Jewish people of Galilee, and I remind you, that's where the apostles were ministering. It's the northern part of Israel. The Jewish people of Galilee they were the objects of the apostles' witness. Not other people, but the Galileans. And these people were very familiar with Jesus. Jesus was from Galilee. Jesus did most of his ministry in Galilee. These people observed his many miracles. They listened to much of his teaching. They could interact with him. He was one of them. One of them. I remember the first time going to Israel. I was walking Along the Sea of Galilee in a town called Tiberias. It's the pretty much the only town that visitors can stay in in the Galilee area around the the sea, and I remember thinking he was one of yours. He was here. You missed him. These people were like that. These were Galileans. They knew about him, they interacted with him, they heard him, they saw his miracles. So what they heard from the apostles wasn't new information. It wasn't something they were hearing for the first time. These people had already had a great deal of exposure to Christ and his message, and the apostles knew it. So when it became obvious to the Lord's 12 official representatives which individuals had set their defiant hearts against Christ, they followed the Lord's instructions to no longer witness to them. Folks, here's the point of application for us. Here's the point. Just like the apostles, we also need to make sure we don't continue to witness to those who are hardened in their stubborn resistance to the gospel. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus referred to witnessing to openly resistant And stubbornly hostile individuals, he called it throwing your pearls before swine. And what he meant by this is that we are not to take the precious, priceless, pearl-like truths of the gospel and give it to people who act like pigs with it by trampling them down in mockery and scorn and ridicule. We're not to do that. That's precisely the type of person Jesus told his apostles to withdraw the blessing of peace, the gospel of peace from. In fact, he told them that they were to do more than simply walk away from a house that clearly rejected him. See, going back now to Luke chapter 9, verse 5, we see that Jesus told his men what to do as they walked away from a house where the gospel had been rejected. Notice verse 5, And as for those who do not receive you, these are people who rejected the gospel, as you go from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now in this statement, Jesus instructs his apostles how to respond to a city. In Matthew's account of this, he adds a house that rejects the gospel. They were to respond, he said, by shaking off the dust of their feet as they would leave that city or house. So what was the Lord talking about? What does these odd words mean? What did Jesus mean by the word shaking the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them? Well, in our Lord's day, it was customary for Jewish people to shake off the dust that had accumulated on their sandals whenever they would leave Gentile territory and enter the land of Israel. And by doing this, they were making the statement that they didn't want to bring back into Israel, into the Holy Land, any pagan influences that could contaminate and morally pollute the Jewish people and the Holy Land. Now, eventually this custom of shaking off the dust from one's feet, it became a very loud, symbolic way, a gesture for a Jewish person to declare that certain individuals, even fellow Jews, were acting like Gentile, pagan, heathen. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul and Barnabas did in response to those Jewish people who organized a persecution against them in the city of Antioch, Here's what we read in Acts chapter 13, verses 50 and 51. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. So in telling the apostles to shake the dust off of their feet as they left the house of someone who did not receive them and their message, Jesus was instructing them to make it clear to those who rejected them in the gospel that although they were ethnically Jewish, they considered them to be just as pagan as any Gentile was pagan. In other words, Jesus wanted these Jewish people living in Galilee to understand that those who were hardened to him pardon to the message of the grace of God, the gospel, we're spiritually lost, just like any heathen Gentile, no different. And we need to stop and think about this, because what Jesus told the apostles to do in shaking off the dust from their feet has an important implication for us. Though today, we don't do this literally. We don't shake the dust off of our feet after witnessing to a resistant individual. If you did that, you wouldn't possibly know what you're talking about. We are still, though, to let those people who have hardened their hearts to Christ know that they are lost and they're headed for judgment. We're to let them know that. See, not only are we commanded by our Lord to preach the good news about him, But to those who continue to defiantly reject Him, we are obligated to tell them the bad news. The bad news is this. Unless you repent and turn to Christ for salvation, you are in danger of God's eternal judgment. In other words, Jesus commands us to be candid, to be honest with those who reject Him. But why? Why does the Lord want us to be so candid in telling people about their true spiritual condition when it's just it's just so awkward you know this it's awkward it's uncomfortable to do this i mean nobody likes to tell people that they're lost and on their way to hell if you enjoy that something's wrong with you we don't enjoy that that's awkward it's uncomfortable nobody in their flesh wants to do that so why didn't jesus tell us to just quietly walk away from people like this without having to tell them the painful news that there are our lost pagans Well, the answer as to why we're to tell them their true spiritual condition, the answer is found in the last few words of our Lord's statement in Luke chapter 9, verse 5. Look at it again. As a testimony against them. What the Lord meant by this testimony against them is that this is our closing witness to them. This is our last opportunity to make one final appeal to them to consider their great need to accept Christ. One Bible teacher called this appeal and I quote, a merciful prophetic act to make the people think deeply about their spiritual condition. See, the point of shaking the dust off of one's feet and announcing the lostness of those who reject Christ was to impress upon people like this the seriousness of their condition of their situation. In fact, folks, this condition, this seriousness is so serious that Jesus went on to say that people like this, those who have defiantly hardened their hearts to the gospel, those who have had a great deal of exposure to the gospel, like the Galileans did, but continue to stubbornly reject him, they are in danger of being sentenced, note this, to the most severe form of punishment and judgment When they stand before God on the day of judgment. Listen to what Jesus said concerning people like this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. And I remind you, this is the same context of our passage from Luke. This is just a parallel passage. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, I remind you that the book of Genesis reveals that the two Old Testament cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were both destroyed by God because of their extreme immorality and sexual perversion. In fact, their names have become proverbial for the wickedness of homosexuality. And someday, the citizens of these two ancient cities are going to stand before God on the final day of judgment and they will receive the eternal punishment for their behavior. But notice, notice the incredible thing that Jesus said about the people of Galilee who rejected the message of the apostles. He said it will be more tolerable for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for the citizens of that city that reject him. He's talking about that Galilean city and the people in those households. This is a very revealing statement as well as a very sobering statement because it indicates that there are varying levels and punishments in hell. There are varying degrees of punishment in hell. You may not know that, but that's what the Bible teaches. Scripture teaches that while everyone who dies without faith in Christ will be eternally punished for their sins and there are no exceptions. Jesus, though, made it clear with this statement about Sodom and Gomorrah that there is a greater degree of punishment awaiting those who had exposure to the truths about Christ than those who had never heard of him or who knew very little about him. In fact, the Bible says that the more exposure, note this, the more exposure one has to Christ, And the gospel message, the greater will be their punishment in hell. Listen to what the Lord said in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 through 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him they will ask all the more. Now these verses are part of a parable that Jesus gave about always being ready, always being alert for his return. And the point he was making in these closing words in this parable is that those individuals who knew the most about him, who knew the most about his will, who knew the most about him from the word of God and still rebelled against his will, when he returns, they will receive the more severe judgment from God than those who were ignorant of his will. Now let me just tell you what this means in plain language. In plain language it means that if you have been raised in a Christian home where you have heard much about Jesus and the gospel or if you have attended a church where the gospel has been constantly proclaimed from the pulpit and Sunday school classes and other home studies or or if you have attended a Christian school where every day you were taught God's word or if you've had a number of people who have witnessed to you constantly over the years, and yet you still have not accepted him, you are in danger of the most severe degree of punishment in hell. That's why this is so sobering. You are someone who we have to shake the dust off of our feet to impress upon you the danger of your spiritual lostness, because frankly, you are a pagan on your way to hell. However, you don't need to go there. That doesn't need to be your destination. Jesus was already punished in the place of sinners just like you. God the Father has already poured out His wrath on sinners by pouring out the full fury of His wrath on His Son as a substitute for sinners. And this Son... The Lord Jesus invites you. In fact, He commands you to repent of your sin and trust Him as your personal Lord and Savior. So I urge you to take heed to this sober warning. It's like Paul said, I beseech you as an ambassador of Christ, be reconciled to Him. Don't let another day go by. It might be too late. Returning to Luke 9 We see that as difficult as this must have been for the apostles to have to tell individuals in Galilee who had rejected the message. And remember, these men were Galileans themselves. These were neighbors. These were friends, perhaps even relatives. But they had to tell them that if you reject the message... That you're like a lost pagan. You are a lost pagan on your way to eternal judgment. Even though that had to be difficult. That had to be awkward. That had to be unique family gatherings for holidays. But still in obedience to the Lord, they carried out his instructions, including this last one about judgment. How do we know that? Because that's what we read in verse 6. To parting, they began going through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now one would expect, one would expect after studying these verses as as we've done for several weeks, that this would be a good place for Luke to just wrap things up and conclude this passage with the apostles doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. However, that's not what Luke does. Rather than ending the passage, seemingly out of nowhere, Luke tells us about how one man, a very significant man, who lived in Galilee, how he responded to the evangelistic activity of the apostles. Here's what we read in verses 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. And by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. Now in these verses, Luke tells us about this man called Herod. Herod Antipas. He was one of the sons of the infamous Herod the Great. This is not Herod the Great. This is one of his sons. And he was the man, Herod Antipas, who was presently ruling Galilee when all this was going on. He's referred to as the Tetrarch because the word Tetrarch means the ruler of a fourth part of a region. You see, when Herod the Great died, the rulership of Israel, of course, under the Romans, was divided amongst three of Herod's sons and then a fourth man by the name of Licinius, which we really don't know anything about, with Herod Antipas becoming the ruler of the region of Galilee. So he is a tetrarch. He is the ruler at this time. So why does Luke suddenly, suddenly tell us about Herod? I mean, where did this come from? Well, it appears that Luke interjects into these verses a story about Herod in order to illustrate the type of individual that Jesus has just been talking about. Someone who had a great deal of knowledge, a great deal of exposure to the truth, but who defiantly rejected it. And as a result, will suffer the consequences of being severely punished for all of eternity. In other words, Herod is an example of the kind of person that Jesus instructed the apostles to shake off the dust from their feet as a testimony against him. Now Luke begins, let's go back, Luke begins his story about Herod by telling us at the beginning of verse 7 that Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening and he was greatly perplexed. In other words, Luke is saying that Herod heard about the work that the apostles were doing in the region that he ruled over in Galilee, and how these 12 men who represented Jesus were going about healing the sick and casting out demons and preaching about Christ and his kingdom, and he was just perplexed, meaning he was confused. He was thoroughly at a loss. He didn't understand And what Herod was so perplexed about is that he didn't understand who this man Jesus was, who everybody was talking about. This was in his world, his neighborhood. They're all talking about him. He's perplexed. Who is this? And notice what Luke says as he continues verse 7 and the following. I just read it to you, but now we want to read it in context. And now you understand a little bit about why Luke has included Herod into his passage. He was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? See, what was so confusing to Herod Antipas is that he couldn't understand who Jesus was because there were so many opinions about his identity floating around about him. Some people said he was John the Baptist raised from the dead, while others were saying that he must be Elijah the prophet returned from heaven. Remember, Elijah never really died. He was just translated into heaven. And still others thought that Jesus was one of the Old Testament ancient prophets come back to life, risen from the dead. After the first service, somebody asked me, was that a a popular view back then? Well, it must have been. This isn't a biblical view, but this is what the people probably thought. This was one of their erroneous thinkings of that day, that people just pop back from the dead with a new identity. Now, it would appear that Herod dismissed the suggestion that Jesus was Elijah or that he was one of the other prophets. But apparently, what intrigued Herod was the thought that Jesus just might be John the Baptist risen from the dead. This is why in verse 9, Herod says this. He said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things What this is a reference to is the fact that Herod had John the Baptist executed by having his head chopped off, decapitated him. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what led to John's execution, but Matthew and Mark do. They're very clear about this in their gospel narratives. Here's what we read concerning John's execution from Mark chapter 6, verses 17 through 28. Many of you already know this. Some of you perhaps do not know this. We read this. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe, meaning kept him safe in prison. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. That's significant. Hold that thought for a moment. He used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately, she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head, meaning the head of John the Baptist. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl... Gave it to her mother. Now, as you can see from these verses, Herod had John arrested because John had rebuked, publicly rebuked the Tetrarch for divorcing his first wife and unlawfully and immorally marrying his brother Philip's wife, a woman by the name of Herodias. It was actually Herodias who pressured Herod into arresting John because she couldn't stand the public humiliation of what John was saying about her. She was immoral, she was lewd, she was sinful. And so Herod had John arrested, but we read that he kept him safe. And according to verse 20, he used to enjoy having conversations with John. Now that is significant. Herod spent time, we read, talking to John the Baptist. He had private conversations with him. And what do you suppose John the Baptist said to Herod? What do you think they talked about? I don't think they talked about the Israeli weather or about sports. Well, no doubt, John witnessed to Herod about righteousness, about judgment, about Jesus being the Messiah, about his need for salvation. So Herod must have heard about Jesus from John many, many times. I mean, we're talking about John the Baptist, the greatest witness of his day. He's certainly going to talk about Christ to Herod. And yet, with all that Herod heard about Jesus, his heart remained cold and callous to the truth and defiant to the truth. In fact, he was so callous to the truth that the day came, as we read in this passage from Mark, that Herod had John executed because at a banquet in honor of his birthday, the daughter of Herodias had danced and it pleased Herod so much that he foolishly, foolishly promised her anything she wanted. And what did she want? Well, you know, she asked her evil mother, who had been waiting for this moment, and she requested the head of John the Baptist brought to her on a platter. And so out of pressure to save face, In front of all of his dinner guests who heard him make this foolish oath and promise, Herod then had John executed. Now, that's the story of how John the Baptist died at the hands of Herod. And it explains why Herod was initially confused about who Jesus was, because he thought, he thought, foolish as it might be, he thought. That Jesus might be John the Baptist risen from the dead, since he was the one who killed him, he made him dead. Has he come back? I killed him. Has he come back? Is he doing all this, all these miracles? Because he's John the Baptist, come back. In fact, we know from Matthew chapter fourteen, verse two, that Herod, though initially he wondered about this, eventually he came to believe this. He was wrong, but he came to believe this. That Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And that's why he thought that Jesus was able to do all of these supernatural miracle works even through his apostles. But folks, what I want you to see is that Herod had tremendous opportunities to hear about Jesus from John, John the Baptist. Jesus said he was the greatest man who's ever been born of woman. He had opportunity, especially during this time that John was in prison, and he was able to talk to Herod on a number of occasions, private conversations. And yet, though, Herod had so much information, so much knowledge about Jesus, more so than most. I mean, could you imagine having a private meeting with John the Baptist? Many, many times. And yet he continued to reject him, and therefore his judgment was more severe than many others who knew very little about Jesus. Notice the interesting last few words of Luke chapter 9, verse 9. And he, he being Herod, he kept trying to see him, him being Jesus. Luke says that Herod kept trying to see Jesus but was unsuccessful. And why was he trying to see Jesus? Well, it certainly wasn't because he wanted to fall down and worship him and submit his life to him, not at all. Herod only wanted to see Jesus out of curiosity, that's all, and to try to confirm his belief that Jesus was John, risen from the dead. But Jesus did not allow Herod to ever see him until just before his death when Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, sent him, sent Jesus to Herod as a prisoner. And what happened in that meeting just affirms the hardness of Herod's heart. Jesus never spoke to him. Jesus never spoke, never answered Herod. He was his governing authority, but he never answered him. We read in Luke 23 verse 11 that Herod treated Jesus with contempt and he mocked him. That's where he was. That's where he was. He heard all of these wonderful truths about Jesus being the Messiah and all he could do when he finally stood before him was mock him and express hatred towards him. Herod Antipas was a very lost man who had ample opportunity to receive Jesus as his Savior and his Lord, but he refused. And today, Herod awaits his final sentencing of eternal judgment, which will be severe because he knew the truth more than most, but he rejected the truth. God forbid that anyone here today Anyone watching on live stream should be like Herod. He is not the man you want to follow. He is not the man you want to emulate or you will follow him into hell and into the severest judgment in hell. But that's exactly what will happen if after hearing so much about Jesus, you continue to refuse to accept him. The question that Herod asked, who is this man about whom I hear such things? That's the most important question that's ever been raised. And the answer, the answer is that Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the Son of God. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He is the King. And those who put their trust in Him as Savior and Lord will be forgiven of all of their sins for all of eternity. You won't get any punishment. You won't get anything, let alone severe punishment. You'll get the bliss of glory in heaven. If you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about receiving Christ, then just see me as we close the service, but take heed, folks to these warnings, these are golden opportunities. I was just speaking this week at Lakeside Christian School near Chapel, and I told the middle school and high school students, I said, my family and I once on vacation visited a church, and a young man, a teenager who sat in front of us, during the whole sermon, all he did was doodle. He was just doodling, just drawing pictures, and the pastor, I don't remember what he was speaking on, but I remember at the time thinking, this is a tremendous message. And yet this young man squandered that opportunity, just doodling, just doodling while the Word of God was going forth. I don't know that young man's heart. I don't know whatever happened to him. But I say to you, don't squander opportunities. God has placed you in a church, and for many of you in a home where you hear the gospel... Where you hear about Christ, don't harden your heart. Accept Him before it's too late. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for what we've been able to study this morning. It's sobering. It's a sad reality, but it is reality that those who know a lot about You but reject You will be severely punished. I pray for anyone here in that situation who's had much exposure To Christ, but still has never truly repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. I pray that today might be that day that they would take heed to the word of God, not squander the opportunities, not be like that teenage boy who I observed, not be like Herod Antipas, Lord. May there be many who will call upon you to save them. And Lord, for those of us who know you, Help us to be faithful in sharing the gospel, but to know when to not throw pearls before swine, when to move on to others, but to be gracious, to be persevering and kind to those who are still open, just haven't seen the light yet, but they're not totally resistant. Help us to have discernment and to be steadfast in sharing the gospel with them. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.